Amen. Thank you, Blake. All right, I'm leaving now. Yeah, get out of here. Hey, good morning, everybody. Again, I love baby dedications. Aren't those cool? This is the best. It's hard to get my mind back into what uh, we're doing here, but this is important too. So uh, I don't know if you guys know, uh, but my dad was a, a, a minister. He was actually a, a preacher and an ordained evangelist with the Methodist Church. Um, so I grew up going to camp meetings. That was something that was part of their tradition that was kind of t- dates back to the circuit riders way back in the 1700s, 1800s. Uh, they had these camps. They were dedicated campgrounds that you'd go to and spend a couple weeks just in church services, basically. Uh, and I can remember going to those big open-air sanctuaries that they had. They, they'd call them tabernacles, but they were basically like open-air pole barns with pews in it, you know, so pole barn with pews. But we'd go to those meetings, and I can still remember the late afternoon sun filtering in through there. And behind the pulpit, in each one of those structures that I went to, there was always a picture of Jesus there. They'd always have, you know, one of those traditional ones. And I know that as a child, I'd study those pictures, and I really feel like they shaped my thinking about Jesus in my formative years. Uh, And they were all very similar. You always had long, uh, very light brown, wavy hair and blue eyes and and he always looked so gentle and serene. Uh, sometimes he'd be holding a lamb. Uh, sometimes he'd just be ever so gently knocking at a door, you know, which was meant to represent my heart, which drove home the reminder of what a jerk I was for leaving Jesus out in the cold. But even out there in the cold, Jesus just had its face that was glowing with patient tranquility. Uh, and it was just uh, so peaceful. Now, when I got to the crazy church, my view of Jesus got swallowed up by the angry, irritated Jesus who was fed up with my failures and, and disinterested in me unless I came with the right kind of faith in the proper amounts. And that dominated my thinking for a long time as well. In the years since, I've dedicated myself to reading and studying the scriptures, the, the New Testament and the, and the Gospels, trying to... to to understand who this Jesus is, trying to understand this God who's presented this to us. And I've come to realize that neither picture that I formed earlier was anywhere near accurate to the Bible. Certainly, Jesus is presented as gracious in the Gospels. He's shown as caring and welcoming. But, you know, Jesus does get irritated in the Gospels as well, mostly with, no, exclusively with religious people, uh, So our extremes of seeing Jesus either as a hippie peace child or as an angry warrior, they have to give way to something else, something more accurate to the narrative that we read in the Bible. N.T. Wright wrote, Many popular depictions of Jesus portray him as a delicate flower of a man. Why would anyone want to hurt him? Maybe it was because he was so annoyingly precious. But that's not the story of the gospel. And so instead, Wright says... We should be looking for a crucifiable Jesus, a Jesus who does something so provocative as to make the religious leaders of the day murderously hostile. That's exactly the sort of Jesus we're going to be encountering today in our study of the Gospel of John. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app and would like to follow along, if you'll go to John chapter 2, please. Last week, we began what is traditionally called the Book of Signs, which is chapters 2 through 12 in John's Gospel. And we read about the first sign, a sign in the wine, where 
we began this theme of messianic replacement, where where Jesus confronts and replaces the religious traditions of Israel at that time. Uh, so he he transformed ritual purification water into wine, and we looked at the ways in which this was symbolic of God's intended purpose through Messiah for what it is that he's going to do. What's up, buddy? What can we do? It is great. It is great. And I'm glad to meet you, man. Right on. God bless you too. So anyway, we saw the wine uh, representative of what God is doing, this new and living uh, work through the Messiah. So today we're going to beam down into Jerusalem. And I say it that way because we left off in chapter, in, in verse 12, where, where Jesus was in Capernaum with his family and his disciples. But when we start verse 13, one verse later, we're going to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. This is prevalent in John's narrative. He's not interested in a chronological story of following it, you know, step by step. He's pulling events from the timeline and he's leveraging them into a picture of Jesus that's meant to provoke us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we'll find life in his name, which is the, the reason he's writing this, as he stated in chapter 20 at the end of the gospel. So in our text today, Jesus is going to perform a scandalous protest against the temple system in Jerusalem. And in this action, we're going to be seeing more of this theme of replacement, God replacing something dead with something living. And you'll see what I mean as we go. So if you're there in John chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. Okay, so this is an event that appears in all four gospel accounts, but John's account of this is very different from the others. In the other Gospels, this event is something that happens at the end of Jesus' ministry, but and it's the provocation, actually, that leads to his arrest. In John's account, it happens here at the beginning. We're just, you know, one chapter in already. Uh, a lot of scholars have tried to reconcile this. Some believe that Jesus then did this cleansing of the temple twice, this being the first time he did it, and that's in John's recording of it. Others, and I'm kind of persuaded by them, believe this is just John's disinterest in the chronological timeline. Uh, he's forming a picture, and he's contrasting Jesus with the institutions of Judaism. So in this case, it's the temple. It was something else before, but in this case, it's this. And so he doesn't really care where it's coming from. He's just trying to make this point. The other difference in John's gospel is what Jesus said. In the three synoptic gospels, Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, that the temple is meant to be a house of prayer, but they made it a den of thieves. Uh, here, Jesus doesn't quote anything. He just issues a rebuke, and his disciples apply an Old Testament leaning to it later on, quoting Psalm 69. I believe John's telling his story accurately. I don't think he's making this up, even though it differs from the others, because he's remembering different parts 
of what happened here. And in this event, he's trying to drive home what it meant to them later on as they're putting all these things together. He's not just giving us a historical news report. He's actually giving us the implications behind it. So our task is to figure out what's happening here. Why is Jesus doing this? Why did he go into the temple and do this thing? And what does it mean? I've heard so many takes on this account. People who feel uncomfortable with what they read as vindictive behavior on Jesus's part. Like, what is this fury all about? Where's my gentle Jesus at? On the other extreme of that, I heard one celebrity pastor out West who wanted to make, you know, Christianity more macho. And so he said Jesus was like an MMA fighter here, like beating people up with a whip. And somehow he seemed to make that, you know, think that that made Jesus better or more worshipable. Uh, uh, I don't know. So let's think of it. Was this rage from Jesus that we're seeing here? Was, this, was Jesus throwing a temple tantrum? Was he, was he coming unhinged because of the financial corruption in the temple? Like, like, was he beating people up? That certainly wasn't in the text. I think those ideas missed the point. And I don't think Jesus is lashing out in anger, nor do I believe he's simply condemning commerce within a holy place. We should see this as Jesus in the pattern of an Old Testament prophet acting out a prophetic judgment on the temple system itself, the entire system in place. Buying and selling. Listen, that's our our go-to thing on this when we read it because it's the stuff that's right out there on the surface of it. But that can't have been the main problem in, in in this situation. People had to come from great distances to get to the temple at, at, at Passover time in order to, to perform the required sacrifices of Judaism. Well, if they brought their own animal with them, they ran a lot of risks in that. Like you bring your own animal, you run the risk of it, you know, getting caught in the brambles somewhere, getting cut or a dog nipping at its heel or worse, it getting eaten by a wolf or stolen by somebody else. The animals for the sacrifice had to be perfect. According to Exodus 12, they couldn't have any marks or scratches or flaws on them. That's why there were pre-approved animals for purchase that right at the temple that could then be taken directly to the priests and everything would have been kosher, literally. Uh, Also, the only currency that could be used to pay the temple tithe, which was also required, were Jewish shekels. You couldn't use foreign currency because obviously it ran the risk of introducing paganism because of the imagery on the coins. So if you came from a Gentile city or country, which many of the people there in Jerusalem did, they were there as pilgrims, you had to exchange that money somehow. You had to, you know, comply with the Jewish law. And so you had to have somebody out there exchanging that money. The point is what's happening in the outer court wasn't necessarily out of order. We could look at it and and see how motives and everything would get a little wonky in this, go askew in a system like that. But we have no historical evidence, either by citation or any other means, any evidence that indicates that there was any sort of corruption in what was happening in in these things. What Jesus is doing in this action is that he's stopping the normal activities of the temple, even if for just a short time, as a prophecy against the temple's system and a judgment on it, a judgment and, and and a forecast of the end of that temple system. But why? You know, the, the temple was the epicenter of Jewish culture. I mean, it was everything to them. It, 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 their, their history, their identity hinged on that temple there in Jerusalem. 
We tend to focus on the words that Jesus says here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And we assume that this is about practicing commerce in a holy place. But that's, that's a surface look at it. This is running much deeper than that. It all has to do with what the temple religion had become. Instead of being God's house. Remember Jacob, when he encountered God as he was on the run from Isaac, saw a ladder that extended to heaven and the angels ascending and descending. And he named the place Bethel, God's house. He recognized that place of God's activity on the earth. The heaven, the overlap of heaven and earth was was going on there. That's the whole idea behind the temple. That's what the temple was supposed to be. The meeting place between heaven and earth. And it had become a place of inward corruption, but outward conformity. So to our theme of replacement, I think we see here that, that God replaces a consumer religion with a heartfelt zeal for God's ways. What's being judged in this event is religious posturing. The temple was meant to represent the overlap between heaven and earth. It was a place where God was revealed and revered. By Jesus' time, and in putting it together with the other gospel accounts, we see that this whole temple system, including its leaders, had become a practice in outward conformity, even a consumer interest for them. When Jesus says, stop turning my father's house into literally a market house, it's a play on words in the, in the Greek, he's not just focusing on the buying and the selling in the courts, but what? They thought they were buying and selling. Buy the right lamb, get the best atonement. Have the right coins, be more faithful to God. The whole system was set up with the notion that a person could purchase a deeper commitment to God, as though God is impressed with the retail value of our outward conformity. It's just a, it's just a human trick that we do. We're good at it. It happened in Israel. It happens to the church over and over and over again in our long history, whether it's selling indulgences to get you out of purgatory or strong arming for tithes in order to get God to bless you a hundredfold. We always have this tendency as humans. We are quick to substitute consumer pursuits for spiritual growth. I want to read something to you that Eugene Peterson wrote. It's so good. He says, we live in an advertisement culture in which new products are continuously presented to us. This is a culture of built-in obsolescence. Nothing is designed to last. In order to keep the economy healthy, we are conditioned to respond to the latest as the best. A new car, the latest fashion and clothes, the latest phone, the just-discovered miracle diet. When this novelty mentality seeps into the church... We start looking for the latest in God, the latest in worship, the latest in teaching, the best preacher in town. Church shopping is epidemic in America. When religion as novelty spreads, maturity thins out. The well-established and much verified fact is that following Jesus is not a consumer activity. Prayer is not a technique that can be learned as a skill. It can only be entered as a person in relation. Love cannot be improved with jewelry or an exotic cruise. It requires submission and sacrifice and reverence. Might as well just say dismissed. Let's go. 
It's intense. That's good stuff from Brother Peterson. Uh, it's good stuff. The disciples, they looked back on this event that Jesus did here, and they remembered Psalm 69.9, passion or zeal for your house has consumed me. And that's interesting that they go to that, because the whole psalm is about a guy who is is pointing out that his commitment to God has made him look like an idiot to everybody else. He's so committed to God that, you know, the drunk guys down at the bar make songs about him because he's so weird uh, because of it. So we read passion. We read passion for your house and we tend to put the emphasis on house as though the temple is what's important in Jesus's protest here. But I think we, we should put the emphasis on your house, remembering who it is at the heart of this life It wasn't the temple. It was what the temple represented. And more importantly, who the temple represented to the people. God doesn't want or care about a life of outward conformity to what it is that is supposed to represent his kingdom. We can always look the part for the right price. God wants to encounter us. He wants us to be on the lookout for an encounter with him, to fan into flame a heart that is passionate for him, for his values, for his way, a desire for life to be shaped the way God intended it to be shaped originally. That's what he's always coaxing from us. Every time we gather like this, we get into his word, we worship through song. This is what it's all about. This is an opportunity for us to encounter him in new ways. There's a potential for that encounter, for him to awaken in our hearts a fresh view and vision for life. And it doesn't require bells and whistles or the latest technology in church dynamics. It it can be quiet and simple and off-key. The the revival taking place that took place in Asbury, I don't know if you ever tuned into any of that stuff. But there were no bells or whistles. There was nothing spectacular happening up there that you could visually see or hear. There was a couple of kids singing on a stage, sometimes way off key. And everybody's heart was exploding with a love for God. It just requires a heart that's willing to look for him. All of these other trappings, what does that mean? What we truly need, we cannot buy. We can only surrender in humility and encounter God's grace and allow him the opportunity in our lives to transform us into the people that he intended us to be, into life the way it was meant to be lived. All right, well, the story goes on, verse 18. He says, but the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. I, Jesus replied, (laughs) destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus said. John is is carefully leading us through this narrative. You know, I talked about how he's numbering the signs at first. He tells us this is the first sign. He'll do that, but then he'll quit doing it, expecting that we're going to pick up on it. You're like, okay, now let's pay attention to these signs. Here he breaks the fourth wall again 
to teach us how to interpret these odd statements that Jesus says. He's not going to do this all the way through his gospel, but he's doing it here to teach us how to do it, to to read something odd that Jesus said and understand it from a different perspective. So so the religious leaders are angry. Uh, They want a supernatural verification and support for Jesus's protest. Notice that they're not denying the accusation. (laughs) They just want to see a badge to prove that he's got the right to say what he's said here. Now, when Jesus responds, he's saying two things. First, he's telling them they are destroying the temple by their actions. But he's also telling them that he is, in fact, what the temple was always pointing to. In other words, just like you kill true worship in the temple with your consumerism, you will kill me. But when you destroy me, I'll be raised up again. And I think that we learn something. And, you know, the power of this, of this life, this relational life, I, I think in this, this theme of replacement, God replaces a strict religious practice with a relationship with Jesus. Like Peterson was talking about, how we, we form this in relationship, not in, in observance of a structure. Remember that the temple was a symbol. It, it visually revealed God's intent to live God's intent was to live in this creation with his beloved humans who would rule this world with him. The temple was a picture of original creation where heaven and earth were overlapped and God and humanity were dwelling together and humanity was there as the royal representatives of God's loving rule. The temple building was never meant to be permanent, never. Originally, when God set it up, It was a tent, a collapsible thing that you got rid of, something that carried with it a sense of disposability. Later on, it becomes something of stone and mortar. But it was never meant to become the be-all and end-all of Israel's pursuit of God, which it had become by Jesus' day. The gospel story is telling us that Jesus is the ultimate reality that the temple was pointing to all along. It's in Jesus It's in Jesus that heaven and earth meet, that God and humanity get reconciled and become one again, that that we as his followers are restored to our original vocation of being image bearers of God and representatives of his loving reign in this world. As Jesus showed in his prophetic protest, the temple structure, like any religious structure, is too easy to hide in. And that's what was happening in Jesus' day. Everybody came to the place where heaven and earth overlapped and everyone was hiding. We are called to a reconciled relationship with God, which is then revealed in our life over time. And that's a lifelong pursuit. That's not something that, you know, we come into this relationship. We say, I believe in you, Jesus. I accept you are my invisible friend. <laughs> and, and then the next day, everything's perfect. No, it's a lifelong pursuit. Then there's ups and there's downs. But it's good to always remember that structures, the structure around this relationship is never important. Jesus always is. And that's what we always have to remember in developing our priorities. It's about Christ. It's about his work, his word, his values, his purposes in this world. Those are what make up my identity, not the structure 
that that is here to help me or to facilitate or enable me in some way. But every structure has to be measured and and viewed in light of who Jesus is and the power of his resurrection. All right, we'll keep reading here. Yeah, uh, yeah, sorry. Verse 23. He says, because it says, because of the miraculous signs, this is John talking again, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. <laughs> I love that. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. That's where we're going to stop today. But this is amazing to me. Even those who were trusting in Jesus. I, this epilogue is intriguing on so many levels. There's just something that he doesn't trust about them. <laughs> we, I trust you, Jesus. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's what you say. <laughs> Jesus knew that even among those who believe, there is just something fundamentally wonky going on there. It's possible that Jesus recognizes that in the excitement of the moment, people are quick to make an emotional decision to, to follow after him or they jump on the Jesus bandwagon. Maybe, you know, it's just something that he's recognizing will fizzle over time. The fact is, for all of what we're saying here today, we don't do this very well. I know you've heard me say it before. Even among those who have a true faith in Jesus, there is the possibility that ritual will place reality. There is none of us who is immune to that. Not a one of us. That's the bad news. (laughs) The good news is, despite the fact that Jesus knows all about us, he loves us. I really think this little epilogue to the temple disruption is meant to remind us that when it comes to our pursuit of God... God replaces self-confidence with a trust in his grace. And that's what it all has to come back to. I've said before, one of our philosophies here at Eastgate is that we take God seriously, but never ourselves. And the moment we start thinking that we figured this out or that we're pretty good at this trusting God stuff, man, look out. I mean, that's, that's, the, you know, that's the stuff that should make us nervous when we start feeling like we've got this together. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 to judge ourselves so we won't be judged. I don't think he means in the eternal final sense. Just meaning that, you know, it's good to examine our own hearts so that God doesn't have to get our attention through some other means. Now, I've had a few people take issue with me at times because of this statement that we don't do this very well. I've had more than one person say, well, that's just so negative or, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure if you say that. But here's the deal. I am just not going to quit being honest about this. And until somebody proves me wrong, I'm going to stick with this. We don't do this very well. The whole biblical record reinforces that truth. If the Bible were a made-up document, man, I'd be thinking about painting humans in a better light than it does. Because everybody's a mess up. Everybody's messes the whole thing up uh, over and over again. Even the heroes of the faith, the Moses, the Abraham, the David, nobody does this well. That's the biblical record. If we, if we could do it well, why would we need Jesus? That's not negative. That's just reality. And it provides me a laser focus on God's grace because that is where our hope is fully revealed in his grace alone. We don't do this well, but the good news is we are still loved. 
The one who knows absolutely everything about us is the one who loves us absolutely. I love the refrain in that, in that old hymn, Solid Rock. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. No matter how well I may think I'm doing, I can't trust in that. I have to trust in God's grace, in the truth of his revealed intent that he loves me. Christianity isn't about becoming better people on our own. It's never been that. It's about, it's about looking outside of ourselves to the only one who has the power to truly change us from the inside out. Not just through the outward conformity, but through that fundamental transformation of our character, of who we are, of who we are as human beings. It's never been about setting, uh, setting out to follow a, a, a system of rules or, or our efforts to become the best that we can be. It's about looking to Jesus, who is the only one, who is the only one worthy of our trust. There's no system of religion. There's no system of politics or government or any other thing that's going to save us that's going to rescue us like Christ has rescued us. Our hope is in nothing less than Jesus Christ and his faithfulness. So let's learn from Jesus' action in the temple. Let's not ever allow our pursuit of God, as best as we're able, uh, our pursuit of God and his ways to become a consumer pursuit. Let's open our hearts to God. Let's allow him to fan a passion in our hearts for him. We'll pursue him in fits and starts. We will. We'll have good days and we'll have bad days. We're going to have ups and downs along the way. We can admit that we don't do this well, but let's never let go of our trust in his grace for us. Let's never give up on our pursuit of his ways, no matter how clumsily we may be doing it. God loves us. God loves you. And he has more in mind for us than just a weak pattern of religion. He wants to redeem us and restore us to our original place to to shine his light into this dark world. So let's trust in his love. Let's surrender to his guidance. I mean, as we're taking this time, as we're going to close out our service and in worship and in prayer, let's, let's open our hearts to him. Let's allow him to reveal himself. Let's, let's have our hearts open. I don't know what could happen, but I know that he's real and I know that his grace is true. And if we'll open our hearts to that, who knows what will happen, what God will do. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this Jesus that we're confronted with in the scriptures. This Jesus who sometimes confuses us, usually perplexes us, but always, always leaves us with hope. We thank you for that. We thank you for the hope we have in the gospel. I pray, Father, that you enlarge our hearts, that you enable us to accommodate the move of your spirit in all that we do. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time. No point of reference You spoke to the dark And fleshed out the wonder of light And as you speak A hundred billion galaxies are born In the vapor of your breath The planets form If the stars were made to worship So will I I can see your heart In everything you've made Every burning star A single fire of grace Creation sings your praises, so will I. God of your promise, don't speak in vain, your syllable empty your voice. Once you have spoken All nature and science Follow the sound of your voice And as you speak A hundred billion creatures Catch your breath Evolving in pursuit of what you said it all reveals your nature, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you say. Every painted sky, a canvas of your grace. If creation still obeys you, so will I. Then we'll sing again a hundred billion times 
of salvation You chased down my heart Through all of my failure and pride On the hill you created The light of the world Abandoned in darkness to die And as you speak A hundred billion failures disappear Where you lost your life So I could find it here If you left the grave behind you So will I I can see your heart In everything you've done Every part designed in a work of art called love If you gladly chose surrender, so will I You can see your heart eight billion different ways Every precious one, a child you died to save If you gave your life to love them, so will I Like you would again a hundred billion times But what measure could amount to your desire You're the one who never leaves the one God, we are so grateful for that grace and that love demonstrated in everything we see. I pray, Father, that you enable us, that you help us to draw close to you. Do that good work in our lives, in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.